Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Kirk eulogizes his Vulcan friend Spock, saying, Of all the souls I have encountered, his was the most human. Spock is one of numerous fictional characters designed to teach us our humanity. What does our creator say? Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the series Imago Dei, with this sermon entitled Created in the Image of God, which covers Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me introduce us into this series that we're calling Imago Dei. Um, You know, I jokingly talk about how you know, when you're a pastor, you got to put things in Hebrew or Greek or Latin or something to make people think that you're really smart and know what you're talking about. But Imago Dei just means image of God. And uh, so we're starting a series on the image of God, and it's an eight-week series. The first three weeks, um, I'll be just trying to anchor us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as we think about that we're created in the image of God. That's where we'll be today. Then we talk. Then next week, we'll talk about Uh, How did the fall uh, affect us as image bearers, as those who are made in the image of God? And then week three will be about redemption. What what does it look like? What is God's process of redeeming those made in his image? And then from there on out, the final five weeks, we'll be talking about the various implications of what it means to live in the world that we're in as image bearers of Christ. So lots to look forward to there, but today we're going to be thinking sinking pretty deep into being created in the image of God and what that means. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, thanks for this time together this morning and thank you. Thank you for the joy and excitement that we feel for even at just a small level to be back together. We pray for all who are hearing my voice right now, both in this room and online. Father, would you would you speak to our hearts today through your word? Lord, would you, would you open our, eye, our eyes to see you, to see what you would have us see and understand about ourselves and our need for you? Lord, we ask you to do what only you can do and that your Holy Spirit would, would shape us and form us indeed more into your image. So we give this time to you, Lord. We ask you to bless it. We ask you to use it for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was at a a, uh, MTW conference back in around 2007, 2008. I wasn't there, but this story was relayed to me. MTW means Mission to the World, which is the missionary ministry of of, uh, our denomination, the PCA. And um, at this event here in Atlanta... It was a conference, an MTW conference. Um, a guy named Paul Koistra, who some of you know his brother, who, his family, who's a part of this church. But Paul was one of the speakers at, at, this, uh, at this conference. And he said, let's, he started his talk this way. He said, let's play a word association game. He said, I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and like you've done probably many times in your life, I want you to say back to me out loud the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that word or phrase. He said, now with some of them, it might be that you, um, I say something, and we get all kinds of responses, so much so that it's in 
it's hard to understand exactly what people are saying because there's all different types of responses. But we'll start easy. Let's start with one that I think will probably have uh, a common answer. And he said, so what is your first thought? Say it back to me when you hear human being or human beings. And there were about 2,000 people at this conference and roughly maybe half of them uh, echoed back to him, sinners. And uh, he cackled just a little bit and said, yeah, I was, I was hoping more for image of God or image bearers or made in the image of God. And isn't it interesting? The answer that the audience gave is not wrong. It's certainly true. We are sinners. But isn't it interesting that our anthropology, if you will, uh, starts oftentimes in the church with Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. As though when sin came into the world, recounted for us in Genesis chapter 3, that Genesis 1 and 2 are just wiped away. And that how God originally created us to be is no longer in consideration. The doctrine of the image of God, that human beings are made in God's image, is so incredibly, profoundly significant. And it's so significant that uh, I would even say, I'm going to make a statement that I'm going to come back around to at the end and explain why I think this strongly about it. But I would even say that if you, uh, that, it's, that it's critical for us to understand the doctrine of the image of God, that we are made in the image of God, so that we can then therefore understand the gospel. Better understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Again, I'll explain later why I would make a statement like that. But let's read the text. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Now, if you're reading, if we were to take the time to read through Genesis chapter 1 leading up to verse 26, you would know that we're in the sixth day that God created and that on the sixth day, he began uh, by creating the livestock. It says, let the earth, in verse 24, let the earth forth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, so on and so forth. So he's creating animals of the earth. And after having done so, then we get to verse 26. This says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let me pause right there and just make a couple of comments. In your Bible, if you've been in or around church, perhaps you have a couple of phrases right there in that very first part of verse 26 underlined. You might have God said underlined because we begin to see throughout the rhythm of Genesis 1 the creative order of God and the way that he's creating and first bringing light into the world and then separating the light from the darkness and then uh, the land and the water and the two canopies of water below and above and all kinds of things that he's speaking to, but he's speaking all of it. He's saying it, as the New Testament gives us insight, that he's creating by the word of his power. And so we're beginning to see just right off the bat in Genesis 1 how magnificent, how glorious, how powerful God is. And so God said, what did he say in verse 26? He said, let us. Let us make man in our, our own image after our likeness. It's plural. 
Why is it plural? There's been debate over the years over this. Some would argue that he's saying, well, man is created in the likeness and the image of all the heavenly beings, but we know from Scripture that's not true, that angels and all the heavenly beings, whether cherubim, seraphim, so forth, are not made in the image of God. So the plurality that is being used here is a hint towards the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, I thought God is one. Yes, yes, he is one. It's one God existing in three persons, but in perfect unity and perfect community with one another, perfect relationship with one another, intimacy with one another, yet one God. We don't know how to wrap our minds around this. The doctrine of the Trinity is something in our finite beings that we are always going to hit a wall when we're trying to understand infinite reality. But this is a hint towards that we are made in the image of the triune God. And that is significant. And then he says this, continuing in verse 26. He says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he's bringing up this idea of dominion. He's going to talk more about that in just a moment. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is significant because nowhere else to this point in the account of creation has God distinguished between male and female. Although we know that according to uh, what we see in animals, we know that there's male and female. And the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field, we know that. But he hasn't distinguished it until this point. But here, in creating mankind, he wants it to be sure, to be clear. Male and female, both are image bearers. Both are significant. Now we're going to do, there's a lot, even in that one verse, to dig into that I'm not going to today, and nor are we going to in this series, because we're going to actually, hopefully in 2021, do an entire series on biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and biblical sexuality and what does it mean that in our, uh, in our sexes, male and female, that we're made into the image of God. And so that'll be something that we dig into at another time, but this is significant that God would point this out, that we are distinct in our design and our role, but we're equal, equal in purpose and value. And we're both equally image bearers of God. Verse 28, and God blessed them. It's easy to read past that and not think about how big that is. Anytime God blesses in Scripture, it's a huge deal. It reminds us even of the blessing that we have often used even of the, in the benediction in our churches uh, from Numbers where it says, May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. and May he give you his peace. The Lord's blessing is what we long for when he creates man and woman. He blesses them. And then he brings up the same thing he brought up in verse 26. He says, And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what we have called in theological circles the cultural mandate. That God would say, I'm going to create you first and foremost for my glory. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us. Why Why did God create us? For his own glory. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
But he's created us with responsibilities as well. And those responsibilities are given to us immediately upon God's creation of us. That we would be a people that as those who have the image of God, that we would move into the earth in such a way that as those who are image bearers, we are reigning and ruling and having dominion over all that he has created. Now, you and I hear that and immediately we probably go, well, that doesn't sound good. And the reason we say that is because dominion and rule and subduing the earth, those kind of, those words carry with them such negative connotations for us because dominion and rule has been broken since Genesis 3, since sin came into the world. And so we have yet to see in humanity, in broken humanity, a pure, good expression of the dominion and the rule that we were given to have from the very beginning in God's original design. So there's three essential questions that we have to ask when tackling this subject. When thinking about being made in the image of God, three key questions, here they are. The first one is, what does it mean to be human? Which is really getting at the question, who am I? And that's a question that um, all of humanity, probably from the very beginning, at least for the last several hundred years, has been asking, who am I? What does it mean to be human? The second question that's critical is, what does it mean that we are made in the image of God. We'll talk about that. And then the third one, why is the doctrine of the image of God so important? Why is it so significant? So let's talk about the first one. What does it mean to be human? Who am I? I wanna borrow some of the things I'm about to share with you. I'm gonna borrow some thoughts from uh, Dr. Stephen Nichols, who's the president of Reformation Bible College and, and the uh, chief academic officer for Ligonier Ministries. And just a year or so ago, I, I was able to sit with Dr. Nichols in my office and just a tremendous man of God, humble, uh, but brilliant and great insight. And so in, in an effort to answer this question, what does it mean to be human, uh, which is really getting at the underlying question of who am I, Nichols says, well, you got to go back at least a few hundred years. And let's go back to uh, really the time frame that began in the 16th century and really began to take root in the 17th century. And this is what we would call the Enlightenment era. And it's in the Enlightenment era from the 17th to the 19th centuries that um, there became an emphasis on answering this question, what does it mean to be human? Uh, the emphasis, though, became more and more not centered on God, unhinged, if you will, from answering that question in any way that has to do with God himself and defining who we are as humans. As you know, the Enlightenment era was a time of high intellectualism and philosophy that began to push God to the margins in a way that said we can define ourselves and our world apart from God. And so, as we get into the 20th century, this, the answer to this question gets even, even more intense in the unhitching of God from the answer. The common answer that we often hear is that we're nothing more than atoms, highly evolved species. An example of that would be Jean-Paul Sartre, famous French philosopher, existentialist lived from 1905 to 1980 and had a major influence on the thought and the philosophy 
and intellectualism in the 20th century. Sartre said this, Sartre had a conclusion about humanity. He said human, human beings are useless passions. That sounds hopeful. He said that, uh, that it's meaningless that we live and it's meaningless that we die. We have passions, but they're useless. This kind of thought began to pervade the 20th century, which uh, more commonly known, obviously, is the Nazi regime. And as you're well aware the, of what was undergirding in many ways the, the, the Nazi regime, you may not know this, that there was a phrase developed in their view of life where there were many humans that were given the, um, the tag, if you will, of useless eaters. The, the way that the phrase that they use literally translates is lives unworth life. And what it was is that they saw life as being valuable contingent upon its ability to make contribution to society. So if a person can't make contributions to society, they are therefore a useless eater. Life worth not life. And so this is how they justify the, uh, the elimination of any human with mental and physical disabilities. This is how they justify the Holocaust. Holocaust, because here's what happens when, you're, when your anthropology, with your view of humanity, is such that there is no value. There is no dignity. There is no specialness, if you will, to who, to who humans are because God has been removed from the equation. There were economic theories that were birthed in the 20th century that did much of the same. Of course, you've heard of Marxism, blanketed the globe in the 20th century. Marxism reduces all humans to just cogs in a huge machine. And our value as humans, as a worker, is about contributing to that grand machine. Certainly here in America, we have touted capitalism. There are many benefits to capitalism, but ultimately capitalism in and of itself is never going to help or save anyone because it too can be made into an idol where individualism is worshipped and productivity is also at the helm and at the, the main thrust of what's behind capitalism. Purchasing power is what gives you value. All of it devoid of definition of humanity apart from God. So here we are in the 21st century, and so there's these ideologies and philosophies and ways of thought that are seeking even more to press into who it is that we are human, and we, are, we have never been more confused. We have ideologies that seek to define humanity based on the cultural themes of power and oppression, of gender and of race, of sexual orientation, you thought about the reality that for the first time in history, we're confused, we've questioned the gender, that gender is a social construct? For the first time in history. And so you end up with things like cultural Marxism and intersectionality and critical race theory. All these efforts that are trying to place people into pockets of society and define them based on their identity that has nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with them being image bearers of God most high, but everything to do with the, the fraught ways, the broken ways, the marred ways in which humanity tries to give definition and fails every time. And so we need a theological answer. 
Who am I? And the answer, the answer is simple, but truly profound. You are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God Almighty. You have dignity, you have value. You have meaning and purpose, not because of anything that the world tries to tag on you as an identity, but because you are made in the image of God. I mean, you think about it. Think about reading Genesis 1 in this way. If you were to begin at the beginning of Genesis and you start working through the days of creation, and in your mind and in your heart, you're praying along the way and you're saying, God, help me to see the grandeur, the majesty, uh, the profound nature of your character, uh, the true glory and splendor of who you are based on what these words tell us about how you created. And, and, and you read, and God said, let there be light. And you read, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And God said, let there be lights in, in the expanse of the heavens. And let there be day and let there be night. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds to fill the earth on the land. And you, you see all this. And you're, as you're reading more and more, your heart is leaping at how amazing God is that he would speak this, but it dawns on you as you get to verse 26 that he's yet to say anything about any of that imaging him, reflecting him, mirroring him, being the crown jewel of his creation. And then you get to verse 26 and you go, what's it gonna be? Who's gonna be the crown jewel? Is it gonna be some creature that's so splendorous to look at? And you realize as you read, it's me. It's us. We're the crown jewel. We're the ones that are so specially formed, fascinatingly fashioned by the hands of God that when he picked up that dust, that was holy dust from the ground that he created Adam out of, not tainted by sin. And that when he looked at man for the first time in all other days, he looked at what he created and he said, that's good. When he looked at you and me, he said, that's very good. Because we are made in the image of God. And that matters. It matters so significantly. This is what David was doing in Psalm 8, by the way. I want you to listen to this. Listen to Psalm 8. I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's short. David, I think, is recounting Genesis 1. And he's saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Listen, verse 3, and when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And then listen to verse 6. It's Genesis 1:28 language. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. 
the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, and he just can't keep going. He has to pause again and end the psalm with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at all that, and I consider what the works of your fingers have done, and then I consider me, Who is man that you are mindful of him? Who is the son of man that you care for him? And that you've placed him to rule and to reign for your good pleasure over all of creation. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Who are we? We're made in the image of God. But why? A better question, what? What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Let me hit three things really quickly here. Uh, John Frame is another great theologian that I'll quote here. He gave us three ways to think about what it means that we're made in the image of God. First one he gave us is physical. It's important to understand the physical reality of our image of God uh, responsibility that let me say it this way we we tend to think over the years we have tended to think that uh, this is just a spiritual endeavor that this is just uh, um, something that God has his uh, the, the whole Christianity thing is is merely only spiritual and that what God is after is he's after saving our souls and that's part of the truth but it's not the whole truth I don't know if you heard this, but growing up, I heard this phrase fairly often. I haven't heard it as recently, uh, so maybe it's not being said anymore, but I used to hear that there's only three things that last forever, God, his word, and the souls of men. And I would answer that by saying, uh, yes, yes, and and the third one, not so much. Yes, God, it lasts forever, sure. Certainly his word lasts forever. Uh, And the souls of men, yes. Yeah, the souls of men last forever. But it's not just the souls. We're created in a bodily form, and that matters. We image God in our bodies, and I'll explain in a moment. But this is why, I hope you're already going here in your minds, this is why it was important that Jesus had to come in human form. If it's just a spiritual thing, if it's just something that happens with our souls, then why did Jesus have to come as a human? A perfect human at that, a sinless human at that, to rectify what, what was marred in the image-bearing of humanity in Genesis 3 is made new in Jesus. But our bodies matter. It's not just that we image him in how we think, certainly so, but even in our existence. Do you ever look at your hands and your arms and your legs and your feet? You, you think about your ears, your eyes, your nose. All of it is imaging God now. You may be ahead of me going, well, hold on, hold on, Jeff. I know the shorter catechism. If you do, props to you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit and does not have a body like we do. So what do you mean we image him in our physical bodies? Well, here's what that means. Yes, God is a spirit. But he gave us eyes to image his character that we would know that he is a God who sees. And he gave us ears to image his character and that we would know that he is a God who hears us. He gave us arms and hands so that we would image God in knowing that he's a God who touches, who's a God who carries, a God who upholds, 
a God who embraces. He gave us arms, he gave us legs and feet so that we would know that we image God in his character, that he's a God who runs to us. He's a God who walks with us. He's a God who sits with us. He gave us an intellect and a brain to know that he's a God of reason, that he's a God of logic. He gave us a heart and he gave us emotions to know that he's a God who is full of all kinds of expressions of emotion and compassion, mercy and grace and love and joy and peace and all of these things that we feel and know and experience as image bearers of God like no other created being. The physical matters. It's why when God determines that time when Jesus will come again, He's not just coming for our souls. He's coming to rescue us and all of us, our bodies as well. That's why the New Testament talks about the bodily resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. Frame also talks about what does it mean that we're made in the image of God. He talks about that there's an official aspect to this. Official meaning a place of prominence if you're an official in the king's court. Frame says it this way, he says, as God holds the office of king, so he makes us his assistant kings to have dominion over the earth, that cultural mandate. And we'll get in this series, we'll get into what does that mean? What does it look like to exercise dominion over the earth? And then Frame gives us a third category to consider. There's the ethical way in which we image God. We reflect him, we represent him. And we do so in imaging his character specifically in knowledge and in righteousness and in holiness. And we'll talk more about that next week. So why is the doctrine of the image of God so important? I mentioned at the beginning, I, I made a statement, I said it's important for us to understand that we are made in the image of God because in doing so we understand more clearly the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The good news that that Jesus came to ransom sinners unto himself, to die on the cross for our sins, to receive the penalty of death upon himself that we should have received. And then defeating that penalty of death, eternal death, by raising from the dead so that through faith in him, we too would resurrect to newness of life, both in this life and in full in the life to come. That's the gospel, but do you know that I would say what I just shared with you in a quick 30-second thing there that is glorious and beautiful was what I would call a two-pillar gospel. You think about pillars, columns that hold up a structure. They're critical to, the, to that structure functioning and staying upright. I would say I just presented to you a two-pillar gospel. Here's a two-pillar gospel. It starts in Genesis 3. Remember my opening illustration? It doesn't start in Genesis 1. It starts in Genesis 3 that with the fall of mankind that, that we're sinners. And then it ends, the second pillar of this gospel presentation is redemption. Man is redeemed from sin through Christ. Now, don't mishear me. This is beautiful. I came to faith on this presentation of the gospel. It was magnificent for me to understand that I'm a sinner. It was magnificent and glorious for me to understand that the only answer to my sin is Jesus. And I would assume that probably most of us, this is our understanding of the gospel, and that's good, and God will continue to use 
this gospel. But I want to present to you that when we, when we consider Genesis to Revelation, and we start in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3, and we finish in Revelation 22, and we see the narrative arc of all of Scripture, we actually have a five-pillar gospel, not just a two-pillar. And the five-pillar gospel looks like this. It starts with creation, where we've been today. That we're made in the image of God, and we're considering what it means, this cultural mandate, Genesis 1.28, to rule and to reign according to God's good pleasure in a way that glorifies him over all the earth as his image bears. Then we get the first part of the two-pillar gospel, the fall of mankind into sin. Third part, third pillar, redemption, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to redeem mankind from their sin. But then there's a fourth pillar. We might call this pillar restoration, which is the work of God to restore mankind in all creation. Now, we preach this all the time in our churches, but we haven't necessarily always included it in our gospel presentations, but it's important. It's important to to know that this restoring work that God is doing, by the way, we're in the fourth pillar now. If you're a follower of Christ, it means you've re- been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Your sins have been dealt with. Your eternal, your, uh, eternal uh, place is, is set that you will be with him in heaven. But we're in this place of where we're not just waiting on heaven. God's doing a work. God's doing a renewing, restoring work in us now. And not just us, but through us. And do you know what that work is? That work, listen to the scriptures. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And look at this. What is the new self? Those who are being made new in Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after what? After the image of its creator. It's a renewing of what God originally designed in Genesis 1. Look at the next one. This is from uh, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, there's that word again, restored in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. This is Genesis 126 language. The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then we see from 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, renewed, restored into the same image. What's that image? The image with which we were originally created to possess from one degree of glory to another. Now the fifth pillar, I didn't give you the fifth pillar, but the fifth pillar is consummation which is the fullness of that restoration, of that renewing work that God is doing in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's physical. That we'll be here on this earth, Christ coming down, new Jerusalem, new city, new earth, new heavens, new bodies. Everything's new. It's a reordering, a restoring in all of its fullness and glory without sin. Eden, but even better. Ronald McCauley and Jerem Barnes in their book, Being Human, they say this. They say the whole purpose of the Christian life is the recovery of the original image of God. In other words, the recovery of the kind of human experience which God intended Adam and Eve to have before the fall. 
So here's what I want you to get a picture of in your mind. I want you to get a picture of the bigness, the comprehensive nature in what God, in what God is doing. The two-pillar gospel is good. It, it has brought many to faith and will continue to do so. But I want you to have a bigger picture that it's not just this uh, invite Jesus into my heart and now my soul has been saved. It's a comprehensive rescue mission that God is is doing, where he is redeeming first and foremost us, those who are made in his image, yes, of course saving our souls, but even in the process of restoring our whole being back to him in such a way that we are beginning more and more, one degree of glory to the next, to image him in this life and living through us in such a way to where we are exercising the dominion that he gave us to bring his glory to be in this world. It's beautiful, it's significant, it's massive, and it only happens through one, one thing. It only happens through one who didn't just bear the image of God, but as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, through one who is the exact imprint of God. The exact representation, one who didn't just come as a marred image bearer, but as a perfect image imprint. God in the flesh, doing everything that we couldn't do to reorder and restore all that we messed up. For some sitting in here this morning, and I would assume many watching online, this resonates with you. That's my prayer, and here's why I think it resonates with you. Because you feel something deeply within you. You sense there's a, there's a beauty within you. You sense that there's a beauty about you. That there's a significance to you that everything you've looked at to in this world hasn't been able to define for you. And you sense and feel deeply that something is there, but what used to be beautiful is now marred, and what used to be radiant is now tarnished. And what you're sensing, what you're feeling, is that you're made in the image of God. And what I pray that you understand is that the only way that image is restored, and you begin to not just feel, but know, and experience the beauty and the radiance and the dignity for which you were made is only found in Jesus. We are made in the image of God and we desperately need Jesus. That's what this series is about. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And we thank you for your word. This morning, we're especially grateful for Genesis chapter 1, Lord, and thank you for the ways in which it teaches us who we are, those who are made in your image. And Father, would you help us see that what we lost through sin can only be restored and made new in Jesus. Oh, Jesus, would you come? 
Give us clarity of understanding and may our lives be centered around you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.